The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. I told you last week, when I started this book, I was really nervous. I was, I was a little bit fearful of, of all the things that we were going to have to address as we walked through, verse by verse, 16 chapters to this letter to, to the Corinthians. Here's what we've addressed, some of the things we've addressed over the last year together. We've addressed through this letter divisions in the church, spiritual immaturity and, and lack of growth. Some were leaving the gospel for the wisdom of the culture. Their attitude toward Paul himself, they, they, some of them just rejected him as an apostle. We dealt with in chapter 5 things like incest and sexual immorality. They were celebrating it, not just tolerating it, but they were celebrating it. We dealt with things like lawsuits going on in the church, brother against brother. We dealt with marriage issues where one spouse was, was withholding sex from the other. We dealt with divorce and remarriage and widowhood and singleness. We dealt with things like idolatry and eating in pagan temples. Things like abusing the weaker brother and authority and submission issues. Some were gorging themselves and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, while those who had little or nothing did without. The abuse and misuse of spiritual gifts as we came to chapters 12, 13, and 14. They didn't understand spiritual gifts. They were misusing them not to build up the body, but instead they were claiming that speaking in tongues was the the ultimate gift and claiming that one above all others. In chapter 15, we dealt with the resurrection of Christ and of believers. Last week, in the first part of chapter 16, we dealt with the issue of generosity in response to the grace that we have received in the gospel. This is a lot. We've, We've covered a lot. Anybody been uncomfortable at any point during this? I know you have. I've I've watched some of you squirm. I've had some of those conversations as we had to just trudge through the difficult texts. I was uncomfortable at times. Some of these subjects I would have never dealt with had we not been going verse by verse through the books of the Bible. But I'll continue to call you back to the fact that God has seen fit to give us this as his word. Therefore, he believes it's necessary that we have this, that this is the word of God, the word of life, and we need it, every bit of it. Now, as Paul comes to the end of this, he feels like I do, and I one day hand those keys over, and he, he, he takes stock. I can't help but to think as, he, as he's writing this letter, in fact, most of this letter, he has dictated it to uh, a secretary who's recorded most of this. In a minute, he's going to take up the pen in his own hand But I can't help, as he's finishing this letter, to think that he's probably thinking about those Corinthians and wondering how they will receive all this. Will they get it immediately? Will they take it up and and just begin to apply it with, with joy and eagerness? Or will they push back from it? Will, they, will this cause more division in them? Will there some that will, instead of by faith trusting and obeying, will they in sin refuse, reject, and, and continue to walk their own way? So Paul, in these last few verses, just wants to take up the pen and give them just a few final words. That's the title of the sermon, final words, uh, so that they can walk away with with the bulk of what he said in a few words. I don't think probably, and we know this if we look to the rest of Scripture, that when they received this letter, they didn't receive it perfectly. They didn't pick it up immediately and obey it perfectly, and neither do we. 
I'm not so um, deluded that, that I think that after walking through this over the year that you've, you've heard everything and you've applied everything and, hey, you're obeying everything perfectly. I know that's not the case because I'm not. And we're all in this work of, of being conformed to the image of Christ. But rather than us saying, well, you know, it's not that important. We've gone through that. We've done 1 Corinthians. Now what? Instead, let's take stock for just a few minutes this morning to see what does need to be applied. By the power of the Holy Spirit in response to the gospel, how should we now live based on what we've heard? Paul wants to give a final few words, and I want to give you just a few of these. I can't cover everything in these verses, but I will cover the highlights here as the Lord leads, and we'll close out this book together. Let's begin reading in chapter 16, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm going to phrase several things that I think Paul means for them in these short B statements. Just like Warren Wiersbe in all of his books that he's written with all the different books of the Bible, he's be wise, be these things. I'm going to follow his lead and give you these this morning. First off, in verse 13, he says to them, be committed. Be committed. Be watchful, he says. Be alert, in other words. Be awake. Be vigilant. Paul felt the need to somehow remind them at the end that they needed to be awake. Probably because what we've learned as we've walked through this book together is that most of the time they were anything but awake, weren't they? They walked around in, in this stupor of immorality reflecting the culture around them rather than reflecting the living God whom they had began to follow. Paul says to them, wake up, be alert. So what does Paul really say to them? What does he want them to be on the watch for? Well, Scripture gives us clues here. There are several things that Scripture tells us that we are to be alert and be watching for. I won't take the time to go to all of these passages, but one of the things that that Scripture warns the Christian to be alert and be awake for is to be on the lookout for Satan. The Bible says that we should be watching for the devil who's seeking to come and steal and kill and destroy. We should be watching. He's like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour. It's not language of old. That's not antiquated and outdated and too 
far gone for people of the 21st century. That's a reality today that we, despite what the culture tries to tell us, must remember that we have an enemy that would love to devour us, that would love to win, that would love to bring shame to the name of Christ. So we must be alert. We must also watch out for false teachers and false teachings, Scripture tells us. that In the last days, there will be some that will come in and they will want to spread discord among the body. There will be those that will heap up for themselves teachers that will, that will tickle their itching ears and tell them what they want. And isn't that where we are in our world today? Aren't we at that place where rather than being told, thus saith the Lord, wouldn't we rather hear a few how-tos and practical things and tell me some funny stories, preacher, entertain me for a few minutes and, and then I'll go on my way. And God says here in his word, in various places, be on the watch, be on the lookout for false teachers. He even makes the point that some, even unknowingly, will invite false teachers into their midst. So it makes it all that much more important that we as Christians know what we believe. And church, I would ask you, how do we know what we believe? It comes from this book. It's important that we study this book, that we do what this book says, that we study to show ourselves approved, that the passage in, in Timothy is true, that all Scripture is given by God, it's breathed out by Him, that it's useful for teaching and correction and reproof and for training in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped and adequate for every good work. Instead of treating this book as if it's worthy of maybe five minutes of our day in the morning or at night before we lay our heads on the pillow and then tossing it aside, what if we as the church began to pour ourselves into this book, into the mold that it gives, and see if we might be conformed to the image of Christ as we seek to know his will and his ways? Guard yourself. Be on the watch against false teachers Another thing that the Bible tells us that we should be on the watch for is the return of Christ. I love that we sang about that in our song this morning, the, that closing song, and even in the middle song, that there's going to come a day when we're going to be with, with him, and 10,000 reasons will be just the beginning of what we sing. We're looking for him to come back, and we should live as believers in this day, knowing that there is going to come a time when he will come and claim us as Ethan prayed. We should watch and look for that day. I think all of these are in mind when Paul tells them here, look, final words to you. Just listen to me. Just be awake. Be alert. Be watching. I think he's got probably all of these in mind. Based on the context, maybe more so watching out for false teaching among them. But I think all of these could be said to be in, mind of, in the mind of Paul. He tells them, stand firm in the faith. When you come to those five little words, stand firm in the faith, I would ask you, which of those words do you think is the most important? I think some of us would say, stand. Stand is the most important. Well, no, firm, firm, because your foundation has to be sure. If, you know, that, that's the most important. No, it's got to be in. It's what you're standing in that's the most important. 
Well, it's, it's faith. It's that if, if you don't have this beginning with Christ, then, then, then you know, none, of it, none of the rest matters. To which I would say all of those words are important, but I believe Paul's emphasis here is on the word the. In the context of all that he has told the Corinthians, I think he is telling them, look, stand firm in the faith. Not a faith, not in spirituality, not in the culture that says, ah, you know, it really doesn't matter what you believe. Just believe something sincerely. What he's saying to them is he's not necessarily talking about the faith of believing in Christ for salvation, but instead when he puts that little word there, the faith, he's talking about what Jude called the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He's got doctrine in mind. That it matters what we believe. In 1 Corinthians 15.1, this is what Paul meant when he said to them, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, he's referring to doctrine. It's important that we, church, as we live in a world that is constantly rewriting morality. Isn't that the truth? Isn't the world around us rewriting morality and right and wrong? all the time, seeking to redefine marriage and and all sorts of other things. It's a slippery slope. And church, it's important that we, as the church living in this day, that we don't just capitulate to the culture, but instead we take a stand, that we stand firm in the faith, in the doctrine of what has been revealed by God. That in a day when it's not popular to say that marriage is between one man and one woman, in the context of, 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 of marriage for, for life, it's, a, it's, a, it's not popular to say that today, but it's important that we today stand firm anyway. The other day I was getting gas. I was pumping gas. At, I told some of you this, but I was pumping gas at a local gas station over on Highway 290, and I'm standing there, and I listen to this podcast. It's the briefing by Al Mohler. Every day he, he talks about certain cultural phenomena that's going on. And it was right in the heart of this thing, and I didn't want to turn it off, so I just left my door open as I was pumping gas. And, and I was listening to this, and he's talking about a case, I believe in Maine, where a, a, a I may get this backwards, but a, a boy was, was born as a boy, but somewhere along the way wanted to be identified as a girl. And so the public school system there in Maine told him that, hey, you cannot use the girl's restroom, but you can, we will allow you to use the, the faculty's restroom. Well, the family then brought a lawsuit against the school board. And so he's hashing all this out and talking about all this. And I'm listening to this as I'm pumping gas. And it's fascinating to me. And uh, this guy pulls up across from me, and he gets out, and he's pumping gas. And he's quiet for a little while. And about a minute after he's standing there, he steps around the gas pump, and he says to me, what are you listening to? So I told him exactly what I just told you. And he began to tell me that, uh, boy, there's so much out there. There's so much that's being told that, that to believe. I, you know, I just don't know how anybody really decides. I, there's just so much to study and know. You know, I, I, I guess it's really, you know, just up to you to, to study and, and to find out. To which I replied to him and I said, you're exactly right, but it's all the more important that there be a standard that we are all going to to study. Without a standard, without, without this doctrine of truth, without the Word of God, if that is removed, 
then who gets to say what's right and wrong? And studying will, will in no means bring us to an agreement on what is right and wrong. And if right and wrong is removed and it's simply left to whatever is good for you in your eyes, then it's not long before a nation falls. We must be unashamed in standing for that truth. We are quickly becoming the minority as the culture turns more and more to what is right in their own eyes. And they don't know it, but it will be the the demise of them and the demise of this nation. We as the church must stand for the truth. Paul says to them just a few words. He says, act like men. This is all under... Under be committed. He says, act like men. In other words, don't act like children. And weren't the Corinthians, as we've walked this book, haven't we seen repeatedly that they were indeed acting like children? Didn't Paul say to them at one point, look, I wanted to be able to feed you with meat, but I couldn't. I had to give you milk. Doesn't he say things like, by now you ought to be teachers, but you're not there yet. Doesn't he at one point even say to them, do you want me to come in grace or shall I bring the rod? Any parents in here ever said that? Isn't Paul treating them exactly like children at times? As their spiritual father having to sometimes bring discipline. And he tells them in his final words, act like men. Be grown up. I would say to you, and I don't want to go off on too many tangents, and this is not meant to be critical or judgmental, but I think sadly too many churches are not led today by men of God. But instead, so many churches are confused and maybe entertained by boys that could shave rather than men of God. Why is this? I think it's because for too long we have gone after church growth instead of healthy churches that grow. We've chased programs instead of chasing after Christ. We've sought lives that are compartmentalized instead of lives that are holy. We've wanted to be entertained instead of be instructed with, Thus saith the Lord. 1 Peter 2 tells us how we are to grow out of this. How do they become men? It's not by them one day just saying, I'm just going to be a man. Instead, it comes as they come to the Word of God. 1 Peter 2 says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Church, it is high time that we quit being childish and we start growing under the steady diet of the Word of God and become men and women of God who live to be holy as we wait for Him. Also, under be committed, I know it's long under this one, but just bear with me. He also says to them, be strong. We know that the only strength we have is what God gives to us. 
We have no strength of ourselves. I've listened to Greg say many times, there's nothing good within me. He replied to someone who who liked something that he said the other day on Facebook or somewhere, and and Greg's response was, well, if it was good, it was not from me. I think that's a healthy perspective. It's not this, I'm putting myself down. It's this reality that, that there is no strength within me to do anything to please God. That my strength, all that I have, comes from Him. To think otherwise, Paul has already told them to think otherwise, that, that they're strong in themselves, is dangerous. We know that, that that leads to fall. He said in chapter 10, verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul knew this personally. After he shares the vision of being taken into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but he's talking about himself. And having seen what he saw there, he relays to us that there was given to him a thorn in the flesh that was to keep him from bragging or boasting in his own strength. That he suffered with this. Whatever this was, whether it was failing eyesight or whatever the case may be, we we don't know what exactly it was. But three times he says, I prayed, God, please take it away from me. And what God showed him through all of that and leaving him with it is to say, look, Paul, I know you want this gone, but you just need to know that my strength is perfected in your weakness. So when Paul here tells them, be strong, he's not saying to them, hey, act like men, stick your chest out and go on. Instead, he's saying, lean on God. As we seek to live and minister to make disciples, let Psalm 31, 24 be true of us. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. We will have no strength without waiting for the Lord. So all of that under be committed. And then, the second one that I'll give you today, and I'll I'll fly through the rest of these fairly quickly this morning. The second point I'll give to you is this. He says, be loving. Not only be committed, but be loving. Verse 14, he says, let all that you do be done in love. Now, we come to that, and we, we think, wait a minute, he's just used all of these military terms, and then he tells them to do everything in love? Aren't those two things contradictory? To which I would say to you, no, not in light of the gospel. The world looks at Jesus, and without saving faith, they look at Jesus, and they see him as simply a weak, defeated man who loved well, but in the end was powerless. He was helpless to do anything about himself. And they killed him. He was weak. Oh, he loved, but he was weak. And they equate love with weakness. But for those of us who have been brought to see the beauty of Christ and trust him as Savior, we know that there was no weakness there, that he was God the whole time, never stopped being God, could have ended the whole thing the whole time, but instead endured all of it with the power to come out from under it, stayed there while he loved. That's strong. Paul says to them, look, as you are watchful, alert, as you're strong in the Lord, be loving. Let everything you do be done with love. Should we not also, in light of Christ's strong love for us, be the most loving people in the world. 
Shouldn't we be the most robust lovers in the world? Third is this. He says to them, be submitted. In verses 15 through 18, be submitted. And there's more. I could, have, I could have brought out so many more points out of this one section here, but I'll just keep it to one. He says, be submitted. There were probably if, th- these that he's talking about when he says, when he talks about those of the household of Stephanus, and he urges them to be subject to these men. Probably these were official men in the church. They, they had some sort of official elder position in the church. But I want you to notice that it's not, it's not that official appointment that Paul points to. Instead, it's, his, it's their character. Look at what he says about them. He says, these were men that were devoting themselves to the service of the saints. To which I think one of the points for us is that when we are looking to appoint people in leadership roles in this church, that we should not look for people who are, who are wealthy and who have strong businesses in the community, maybe have governmental influence. But instead, we should, maybe those things would be fine if, if, if this person has this, but primarily we should look, what are they doing in the service of the saints? Are they leading the way there? I don't want to embarrass anybody this morning, but last week I was teaching. I was in the middle of kind of teaching and finishing up our uh, membership class back here in the choir room, and I'm standing there, and, and Fran walked in, and Fran brought a note. She laid it right there on, on my podium, and I didn't have time to look at it while I was teaching. I just sort of tucked it away, and then as soon as the class was over, I pulled it out and I read it. And um, one of our members last week in the middle of Sunday school, uh, one of our older members passed out, and, and had to be taken by ambulance from our facility to the hospital. And I got a note, but they, it wasn't, hey, you need to come quick. You need to go. Instead, it was just want you to know. When I came out from there and I went out and I began to talk to some of our people, I found out that, that Clay, one of our deacons, um, had put the spouse, had put the wife of this man in her car and that he had gotten behind the driver's seat and that he had driven her to the hospital behind the ambulance, that he had gotten her in there and made sure she was fine and was staying with her while everything was being checked out and going on. A little bit later, F.E., who most of you know, standing at the front door, he gets in his own car as soon as he's through out there with responsibilities and heads to the hospital because he wants to be there. And, and when he gets there, he relieves Clay, and Clay comes back, and F.E. stays for a while. And while tests are going on, F.E. takes this wife back to get what she needed, brings her back, and, and just takes care of her. So why are you telling us all that? I'm telling you that because these are the types of men that are easy to follow. Aren't they? That without being told and, and having to be prodded into this, they just step up. They just risk it all. It's another translation of that is they just risk it all. They just put everything on the line to serve the body. And I, I would tell you that those are the men who are the easiest to follow. There will be those who will serve in, in official roles, but there will also be those who are like these men who just on their own self-enlist and they devote themselves on their own to service. And that should be the case. It should not simply be just a few sprinkled here and there, but that should be the case across the board. 
The Bible teaches that, that we should all be looking out to one another's interests as better than our own, more important than our own. That we should seek to outdo one another in showing honor. That should be the story here. We should be submitted, and Paul wants them to know that. I want you to notice, too, that in verse 18, skipping a lot, but let me just point out there that Paul says these are the types of men that are refreshing. They're not the kinds of men that you you just hate to see them coming. And we all know some of those, right? You see them coming and you, oh, great. And look, I'm the pastor and I'm standing up here telling you. I'm not going to name names, but I'm just telling you, right? And you know it. I can't believe the pastor just said that. Surely he loves everybody. I do love everybody. But some of you get on my nerves, (laughs) right? And I get on your nerves, right? Because that's how we are. We're sinners, Aren't you glad, though? Wouldn't you rather be around people that are refreshing? Wouldn't you rather be around that person who, who doesn't come in and say, you, you say, well, it's a nice day out there. What's so nice about it? You know? Boy, we had a good crowd in church today. Well, except for that one section back there, it's pretty, pretty empty back there. I mean, wouldn't you rather be around somebody that says, man, it was awesome. It was awesome to hear about the Lord his grace for me. Wouldn't, wouldn't you rather be around somebody like that? These are the types of people Paul says that we should give honor to, that we should recognize, that we, as they serve God and they are a joy and a refreshment to be around, that we should give honor to them and recognize them. And we should say, you know what? There's a person who I want to be like. I mean, ultimately, I want to be like Christ, but, but that's a person who I see is following Christ. So I want to get as close to that person as I possibly can. I want to honor them by saying, could I just follow you as you follow the Lord? Let me go on for the sake of time. He says to them, not only be submitted, but he says, be welcoming. In verses 19 through 20, notice all the greeting that's going on. The churches of Asia Send their greetings. We don't know how many churches those were, but they all send their greetings to the church at Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla, together with the church that's in their house, they all, hey, make sure and tell the church at Corinth we said hello. We, we love them and we're praying for them. All the brothers, we don't know all of who he's talking about, but could have been Titus, could have been others that are saying, make sure the Corinthians know that we love them and we're praying for them. Paul himself says, I write this greeting with my own hand. He's going to finish out by telling them, my love be with you all. Notice all this greeting. I mean, it, it, it used to bug me. It used to be a trend, and maybe it is in some places, and this is not to be derogatory toward any methods that any church has practiced, but I remember thinking as a kid growing up and watching churches that would schedule into their service a time of greeting. I used to think, it's just weird. And maybe, maybe some of you would, would like for us to do that, and, and if that's okay, I mean, that's fine. But I just, as a kid, I remember thinking, why do we have to schedule in a time to shake hands with one another? Why, why do we have to say, okay, now that you've come in cold, not looked at one another, turn around and greet one another? It just felt fake to me. Shouldn't it be something that happens naturally between brothers and sisters? Doesn't First John talk about that one of the fruits of a, of a Christian's life is love for the brethren? You know, one of the greatest testimonies you give every single week, week in, week out, is the fact that after the service is over, you cause whoever is staying to lock up the building to wait forever. You do. And finally, somebody in this room has to turn the lights off because y'all are standing around talking to one another. 
Then you move out of this room because they've turned the lights out on you, and you go out into the, into the narthex, and you stand out there, and the people with the keys are going, yeah, just waiting. And they're not complaining. None of them have said to me, I wish these people would get out of here. I just want to go to lunch. You know, nobody said that to me. It is a testimony to your authenticity of following Christ that you love one another and that you want to stay around one another, that you want to be here with one another. That means there's a genuineness of Christ in your life. Don't neglect that. Paul says, be welcoming. Greet one another. And then he says that thing about the holy kiss. So so is that prescriptive, pastor? Are we supposed to still be greeting one another with a holy kiss? To which I will say adamantly, no. Okay? Um, In that culture, in that day, it was the equivalent of a handshake today. Or a hug or something like that. It was part of their greeting. It was part of the culture, what they did. If you came in here, if you start coming in here next week and you start trying to kiss everybody, I promise you, nobody's going to be hanging around with you after the service. <laughs> I mean, I, I, well, some people might. I mean, I don't know. You know, perspective, I guess. But the point is, greet one another. Be affectionate with one another. Shake hands. Hug one another. Talk with one another. Pray for one another. Know what each other's lives involve. Be welcoming. He goes on. I'm I'm coming to the end. And he says in 21 and 22, be pure. And this is where he gets harsh. It seems out of place. Paul here, when he says, look, look at verse 21. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Well, this Paul, you've just told us, do everything out of love, be welcoming to one another, but if anybody has no love for the Lord, let them be accursed. This just seems so out of place, Paul. What's going on? I think Paul here has in mind the constant troublemaker who displays no fruit in their life. You ever been around someone who claims to be a Christian, but they are always sour and they're always mean and they complain about everything? The person I described earlier... I mean, you look at them and you look at some of the things they do and, you, and you've maybe said things like, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I can't tell if they're saved or if they're not saved, but how could a Christian behave like that? I mean, over, I get if they, you know, have an outburst or having a bad day, but just it's a pattern of their life. Can they be a Christian and do that? And the reality is that in a lot of those cases, no. In a lot of those cases, they're probably not saved. They've never been saved. They have had some type of assurance from the church at some point. They may have walked an aisle or been baptized or signed a card or something like that. Maybe they've been allowed to sit in Sunday school classes all, all their lives and no one's ever confronted them with their, their sin of just this negativity. And they're probably, probably lost. And to them, Paul's not saying, Paul's not saying you know, that, that, uh, that everybody who just has a bad day that we should just say, accursed. But there are those who are hanging out in churches under membership that are not saved. And if you're here today and you're trusting in something other than the finished work of Christ, let me tell you something. You're not saved. Your name may be on a roll, but you're not saved. Paul says, let them be accursed. And then he, he goes on and, and he says this little statement there, Maranatha, or our Lord come. 
And it seems, again, out of place after he said this. Probably what a lot of theologians think is that when he says, if someone has no love for the Lord, let them be accursed. And then he says, our Lord come. It's a prayer from Paul saying, God, I know the damage that these types of people can do in the churches. God, would you please come and remove them from these churches? And I think that's probably the case. For the purity of the church, there comes a point where we must discipline. I talked about this with those in the membership class this morning. Matthew 18 prescribes it. And there comes a point where in some cases we have to part ways. Where we have to say to a person, your behavior is not telling the story of grace. Your behavior is telling the story of someone who's still in their sin. And because of your refusal to repent, then we've got, to, we've got to part ways from you. And that's not, I told them, that's not unloving. That's the most loving thing we can do. The most hateful, damning thing we could do is to let them spend their entire lives sitting in church with us affirming every week that, yeah, they're fine. And then one day us go to their funeral and stand around afterwards eating chicken salad and talk about how sour and ugly they were and think, man, I wonder, did they really know Christ? And that's hateful. So we must love, we must be pure, we must guard the church. It is the bride of Christ. We must guard her witness in the world. Last one is this. Be sure. And I started on this, and I'll, I'll just end on this uh, a minute ago. I started, let me, let me just go a little further. Paul closes by reminding the true believers of what is theirs, that salvation is by grace alone. He says in 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And then he says, my love be with you all. He, he reminds them of what is theirs. For the, for the one who is a believer, they understand that they are, they are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And a result of that will be this love for the brothers. It will be there. It may wane at times, but it will be there. And I would say to you what I said a minute ago, if you're not counting on God's grace extended to you in Jesus, or if you don't have this love for the brethren evidenced in your life, then I would tell you that you're still in your sins. And I would call on you to turn from your sins and repent and trust Christ. Believe on him and he will forgive you and he will give you life. This book has been good for me. This book is filled with all sorts of hard things. But let us not fall to the temptation of thinking that this book was simply about a church somewhere out there. But let's take stock that what was tempting and dangerous for them is also today tempting and dangerous for us. Let us be vigilant to trust in Christ and to heed what's here. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. God, I thank you that you've loved us in the gospel. And God, I pray that you would, Lord, continue to build this church for your glory, that you'd make us healthier, you'd make us holier. God, that you would do something, a stirring within us. God, that becomes, it appears like a grassroots movement among the members of this body. But even behind the grassroots movement is your moving in us. God, let it not just simply be the preachings of one man on a stage, but God, I pray that it would be the lives, the sermons that are preached there from a church 
that is completely surrendered and passionate to see God glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here and, and, uh, and something has been said, it's made you think, maybe there's something in your life that needs to be addressed, needs to, you need to, to deal with something between you and the Lord, feel free to do that now. If today you're here and you've never been saved and, and my appeal to you that you're trusting in something else, here's, here's the offer. I, I would love to talk with you. I'll be seated right down here. And if, if you're here today and you're lost in your sin, turn and trust Christ. You don't need to come talk to me, but if, if that would help, I would love to talk with you. So come, see me, come talk to me. Love to start that conversation. Maybe you're here and church membership is what God's leading you to. Whatever the case may be, don't harden your heart, but be obedient and say yes and follow him today. You respond as the Lord leads. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.